Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. That brings us to step two. Once I admit, I need to acknowledge the breadth and impact of my sin. Because I can admit, but not see the full picture. Uh, And Tim Challies, uh, he begins to unpack this for us. He says, pornography has a unique power to damage a marriage because it is ultimately about self, not union. Indulging in pornography is a form of psychological isolation. A withdrawal into a tiny world of self-gratification. It is a kind of sexual expression that makes your appetites much larger and larger, even as your world is getting much smaller and smaller. Now what we have to acknowledge here is that sin always changes us. Just like obedience always changes us. For us to argue for non-influence is just silly. C.S. Lewis gives a beautiful picture of this. He says, Every act of obedience or disobedience is a part of a larger war where that act of obedience or disobedience is the claiming of a crucial piece of ground that itself may not determine the battle, but that bridge that we overcome would be something that would cut off what would allow the enemy to get their troops across. That hedge that we... Every point of obedience or disobedience is a strategic point in the spiritual warfare that goes on in our life. And for us to think that we can do this and it will not affect us is the height of folly. At the very least, it redefines how we understand good sex or a good relationship. And even at that very small and innocent level, it becomes the system by which we grade our spouse or any other relationship that we're in. Now Harry Schomburg He says, a sex addict, however, uses fantasy to move towards the unreal world of false intimacy rather than towards the real world of accomplishment and intimate but sometimes painful relationships. All sexual involvement begins in the mind. Sexual fantasy is a form of self-worship. And again, he gives us this idea that, that lust is escape into a false reality. Pornography, emotional affair, adultery, all of it is a false story. So let me give you a progression uh, that lust oftentimes follows that I think begins to help you see this. I hope it begins to break down some of the gender stereotypes we bring to the subject of lust. But we begin with lust, with the image. Again, he says it usually begins in the mind. Lust almost always begins with some form of curiosity. And that image becomes a standard, a standard by which we measure others. Now the next part of that is is the image alone doesn't stay very exciting for long, and so we need a story. Uh, The information needs to come alive. Uh, Every catalog, uh, again, even innocent catalogs that are not pornography magazines like a Playboy, they show their models doing something. Why? 
Because it's more appealing when it's a part of a story. If they're selling a coat and they're having a snowball fight, I want the coat more if I like the idea of a snowball fight. This is why Victoria has a secret. She's trying to bring a story into what's going on. But the problem with all of our lust stories is that the story and reality can never match. This is oftentimes why in the escalation of pornography, the image is not enough. We want to go to the video where we can hear the voice of the person that we're seeing. And again, we hear that sense of God replacement where Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice and they come to me when I call them. That, that there is a voice that we're looking for to seek comfort from, but we want that part of story. Now, now with that, there, that next progression is, is risk. We don't just want the story. We want to step into the story. We want to become a part of it. Being a part of the story from a distance is exciting for a while, uh, but even my four-year-old child watches something on TV with ninjas, and he's not happy watching ninjas for long. It's pretty soon he wants to karate chop me. It's not enough to watch the story. He wants to step into the story. And risk is one of the reasons why sexual sin inevitably grows. One of the areas that we'll touch on later, but I, I inject it here just for you to begin to think. Oftentimes, one of the forms of risk that has become entirely too accepted is sexually connotated humor. Where in the midst of a social setting, we can put that sexual innuendo out there and it just creates that sense of tension. And we begin to see who's going to resonate with us. And then our humor begins to determine our friends and those who will laugh at our jokes. And all of a sudden, our community begins to be defined by that. And those who won't laugh at our jokes, they're just kind of stiff and uptight and too good and goody-two-shoes. Now, from risk, it comes to conquer. Sex is not only powerful, it's about power. Uh, if you look at a passage like 1 Corinthians six fifteen through the first part of chapter 7, there's something very interesting described about sex. Is it's one of the it, scripture basically says we are owned by two people. We are owned by God, and we are owned by those we have sex with. There is this sense of ownership that comes with sex, and we pick up on this. This is why when somebody is in that point of intense craving, they say, "Ooh, I just want to have her. I just want to have him." That's conquer. And then finally, there is the stage of isolation. That sexual sin, if I could give you a picture, is like drinking salt water. When somebody is being trained for the military, and, and they go through all the different scenarios that they can train them for, one of the things that they tell them is, if you ever get stranded at sea, the most important thing for you to learn is don't drink the salt water. But picture yourself stranded on a raft in the sun, heat bearing down, and the only sound is water lapping against your raft. Your throat is dry. You want a drink. You take that first drink of salt water, and there's that moment of refreshment, and it And what begins to happen? 
Well, it changes your body because of the, the makeup of salt water. And all of a sudden, the dehydration of your body accelerates and the death that you die is much more painful. Do you see the picture of when we come to sin for life? We come to sin and we may have these very natural longings as a relational being who was made for worship. And there's all of this sex and lust just lapping at the feet of our life. And we take a drink and initially it refreshes us and then uh, very quickly it begins to feel like death in our throat. We don't feel like we can be real with people. Those who we want to be most close to, we, we are not most close to them anymore. Uh, that is the progression. Um, and Steve Arterburn in Every Man's Battle makes another point. He says, what you're doing is stealing. The impure thought life is the life of a thief. You're stealing images that aren't yours. When you have had premarital sex, you touch someone who did not belong to you. It's like walking down Main Street behind someone who drops a $100 bill and you pick it up. The money isn't yours, even if he didn't know he lost it. Let me just give you something to think about in terms of acknowledging the breadth and impact of lust. How much does lust give you the mindset of a thief? You go through your day looking for a chance to steal a glance. We even use the language. You're averse to the effort and pain it takes to develop a real relationship. You begin to view things that belong to others as if they could or should belong to you. You're constantly thinking of excuses of why your lifestyle is necessary. You begin to associate less with those who do things the right way. And in the end, you spend more time planning for your sin than it would take to earn what you're stealing. There's a lot of parallels there. Uh, and our sin doesn't just impact us, it impacts others. Uh, listen to this painful quote from Naomi Wolf. Uh, she talks about the way that pornography is affecting women in our culture. She says, how can a real woman with pores in her own breast and even her own sexual needs, possibly compete with a cyber vision of perfection, downloadable and distinguishable at will, who comes, so to speak, utterly submissive and tailored to the consumer's least specification. Today, real naked women are just bad porn. And one of the things that you'll go through in this chapter of the material is how... Our sin impacts others. It changes our expectations of the opposite sex. Our friends, we don't feel like they really know who we are. Um, it kills what God intended the local church to be. It affects our spouse and our children. Uh, Appendix C in your notebook uh, talks about how this should be talked about with your children if this is something that has disrupted your home. Finally, it disrupts other people's life if you have an adultery partner uh, and their family. Uh, and that's usually part of what sin uses to create this trap where we feel like it's necessary and it would be too hard for us to get out. Um, one final thought here in this section by Robert Jones. 
He says, I recommend a two-stage confession. An initial honest disclosure face-to-face followed by a reflective, thorough, God-centered confession. This approach recognizes the importance of an immediate acknowledgement to your spouse. Again, this is if married uh, and pastor or counselor. It also recognizes that a more thorough and careful repentance is needed. Come clean completely. She may not forgive you. I would add, he may not forgive you. All of the literature out there stereotypes this as men. All of the... um, prepositions, all of the pronouns will be male pronouns. I apologize for that. Um, He or she may not forgive you. But if she later discovers that you have held back or minimized important facts, the odds of her forgiving and trusting you are severely diminished. If the adultery itself, I would say pornography as well, does not end the marriage, your half-truths may well kill it. It... I cannot tell you the number of marriages that I have counseled where pornography and adultery is involved and that reconciliation was entirely possible, but the marriage died a death of a thousand confessions. Now what I think he brings up here that's important at step two is that this is two parts. And what you'll be advised to do in the notebook section of this material is you will be advised to give a full disclosure. If you're married, that should be your spouse. Um, Probably a pastor. We'll talk about who else needs to be involved in that uh, as we move through. But a full disclosure of your sexual sin. That same 11-point progression that we went through in step one, you will go through again and use some reflective questions that we give to you so that you can disclose what the extent of the sexual sin is. Uh, We do not forgive in ignorance. At least it is usually not advisable. I know the questions immediately coming out there, well, how graphic do I get? We're going to come to that. But for the moment, the commitment needs to be there for you. I will say whatever needs to be said. Because as soon as I justify lying by saying that I am protecting my spouse, I have just made sin seem noble And I have fallen back into the trap again. Now, the end of step two is this. I bring my full fiction world into reality. Until I bring my full fiction world into reality, I am keeping my fantasies on life support. When I acknowledge the breadth and impact of my sin to another person, I pull the plug on my sexual sin. Doesn't mean it's going to go away, but it means the fantasy world in which I was living was torn down. And that hurts. And I think that's why when Jesus gave His diagnosis, that if we look at a woman or a man lustfully in our heart that we have committed adultery, He gave a very vivid and painful prescription for that. That the solution to that, because it is a heart level sin that is being plucked out, it feels as painful as having a hand cut off or an eye plucked out, but we dare not take it less seriously and less severely than Christ calls us to. In coming steps, we're going to define that a bit more clearly so that we are not reckless, but our obedience will feel very radical.
Because if we're going to change something as personal and pervasive as sexual sin, it must be.